Radio Mano Papachango. of Tangentially Speaking. This episode is a conversation I had a couple of months ago with a guy named Harley Rustad, R-U-S-T-A-D. He wrote a book called Lost in the Valley of Death about my friend Justin Alexander. Uh, If you're new to the podcast and you don't know who Justin Alexander was, I highly recommend that you go go into the archives, check out some episodes there, look him up on Instagram. His feed is still alive and well, even if he isn't. Um, The basic outlines of the story are that Justin was a traveler, a photographer, a storyteller, um, a beautiful guy in in many, many ways, Uh, beautiful physically. He had a beautiful eye for images. He had a great eye for story, for narrative. Uh, he was a good friend. He was uh, someone I got to know through the podcast, and and our relationship extended well beyond it. We ended up spending about a month together in northern northern Thailand. Uh, what was it? Four years ago now, maybe five. I think it was twenty sixteen. And um, then he went uh, to Nepal, worked there, building a school for kids that had been um, destroyed in an earthquake. And then he went to India and got involved with um, a guy who claimed to be a sadhu. Although my friend Viram, who spent 20 years in India, explained to me that real sadhu, a sadhu is a, a spiritual person, um, but that real sadhus don't look for foreigners to hang out with. They don't. Uh, they don't ask people for money. They don't invite people to come on trips with them into the mountains. Um, they don't do a lot of things that this guy did. And um, anyway, Justin got mixed up with this guy. Ended up going with him into the Himalayas, into um, a valley. He was going to live in a cave for a while. He did live in a cave for a while. And Justin never came back. The sadhu did, as well as a Nepali, um, uh, what's the word, for someone who kind of carries your bags, you know, a a guy. Um, Anyway, he, he was there, and the sadhu got arrested when suspicions were raised about where Justin may be, and then uh, the sadhu very conveniently died in the prison cell. Uh, The story is that he hanged himself when the guard stepped outside to take a piss. So he can't be interviewed, and the mystery remains, and I guess will always remain, as to exactly what happened to Justin. Um, some people think he may still be alive out there somewhere because that's the kind of guy Justin was. Um, he 
well, <laughs> the kind of guy he was in the sense that he loved adventure and what could be a bigger adventure than dying and living a different life. But he wasn't the kind of guy who would put his friends and family through incredible pain. So I don't think Justin's alive. In any case, that's what this conversation's about. Harley did a lot of research, traveled all over, f tracing Justin's steps, actually found the cave uh, where Justin spent his last days. And we talk about all that. It's a really interesting conversation. It's a great book. Uh, they sent me a, a review copy. And as I said to Harley, you know, I didn't want to like it. Um, I am very kind of leery of anything that feels like exploitation of Justin and his story. And uh, so I was kind of predisposed to not be a fan of this book, but when I started reading it, I quickly realized that Harley was coming at it from a, a position of respect and kindness and uh, genuine curiosity. And uh, he never met Justin, but having spent time with both of them, I have no doubt that um, Justin would have respected Harley and and he would be happy with the way that uh, Harley tells his story. So if you're interested in knowing more about Justin, I highly recommend this book, and I hope you'll enjoy this conversation with Justin. As far as my particular situation goes, I'm still on Kopayam. If you're looking at uh, Google Earth or something, it's uh, an island off the coast of Thailand. Uh, closest city is Ranong. It's near the border with Burma. We look out from the beach and see islands that are part of Myanmar, also known as Burma. Um, and uh, yeah, it's beautiful. It's, it's basically empty. Um, there are lots of hurdles to getting into Thailand as a tourist right now. Uh, which uh, keep most people away. I'd say probably there might be 10% the normal number of tourists around. So things are empty uh, and beautiful. And man, there's this big beach that we walk on every day at sunset. And there's almost no garbage on the beach, which is sadly... Uh, <laughs> a rare and amazing thing to to find a beach. I mean, even in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, um, the beaches are covered in plastic trash. Um, and for some reason, this one isn't. So that's pretty awesome. Um, on the other hand, there are fucking sand flies and mosquitoes. And I am covered in bites. And I am so fucking itchy. And it reminds me of this quote I read recently, which is that uh, nostalgia is memory without detail. I, I've been thinking about that a lot because I feel like it's a, it's a thing we do in our thinking so often. We remember relationships and we think about how much we love that person and we think about how good it was when it was good. But we don't generally think about how bad it was when it was bad. And we generally don't remember the annoyances. 
And so when I look at photos of Thailand or, you know, beautiful islands, tropical islands, it's like, yeah, we look at the photo and it's like, oh, that's beautiful. Look at that. That's so beautiful. But the fucking sand flies don't come out of the photo and bite you and remind you what it feels like to be there. I mean, believe me, I'm not complaining. I don't want to come across as like, listen to that asshole complaining about the sand flies in paradise. I'm just saying, like, our perceptions are incomplete. And uh, try to remember that, that there is, wherever you are, whatever you're doing, there are really awesome aspects of it. And there are aspects that aren't so awesome. But when you remember it, you're probably not going to remember the unawesome. You're going to remember the awesome, hopefully, if you're oriented that way. Um, so try to enjoy the awesomeness of wherever you are, whatever you're doing. And I will try to ignore the two dozen intensely burning, itching bumps on my legs and back and arms. Oh my God, I'm so itchy. All right, I'm going to play you out with a song that uh, is appropriately haunting. It's a song I played once before on the podcast. It's called Border Country. It's by the Paper Stars. And it's a song about an adventurer. In this case, it's a, a skier who's doing some backcountry skiing and the night before he goes out, uh, I guess it was in the Rocky Mountains, he uh, wrote some notes in his journal um, that was found later and um, after he had been caught in an avalanche and died and it turns out that the notes that he had written in his journal were images of dying in an avalanche. And I have to believe that my friend Justin had many such visions of his demise. He saw himself largely, I think, as the star of a movie or a book about him. And so he would be strangely satisfied. I don't know if that's the word or um, unsurprised that there's a book about him. And, uh, you know, if you look at his Instagram feed, you see that he saw himself as the object of his own attention in, in many ways. And I don't mean that purely as a kind of silly, egotistical thing. I mean that as a way of inhabiting one's own life. Anyway, this song is called Border Country. It's haunting and beautiful and about adventure and risk and how some of us, at least in our imaginations perhaps, um, are able to transcend borders and move into other realms. Miss you, Justin. Well, here he comes to take me down, take me down with the thundering sound. And here she comes, arms spread wide, 
calling me back from border country Well inch by inch, step by step Shadows running in both directions I'm carrying down from the echoing sounds Bringing us face to face Tighten my boots, make a run Turn to see that my thoughts are tied Standing still in the blazing sun Nowhere to hide Here in border country Well here it comes to take me down Take me down with the thundering sound Here she comes, arms spread wide Calling me back from border country Well, inch by inch, step by step Shadows are running in both directions Wishing for my mama and my sweetheart's delight Grabbing at the earth, holding on tight Wishing for my mama and my sweetheart's delight Grabbing at the earth, holding on tight Wishing for my mama and my sweetheart's delight Here in border country Here we are with Harley Rustad. This is a special uh, experience for me, Harley. Um, before we go any further, I just want to congratulate you 
on your book, um, Lost in the Valley of Death, about a friend of mine, Justin Alexander. And, uh, you know, when I say it's a really good book, uh, I, I'm coming from the perspective of somebody who has a lot of emotional investment in that story. And um, I think I'm kind of primed to not love it. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's it's. I saw a TV show that they did. I don't even remember who it was, but I think you were in touch with them. I remember there were a group of different people who were all interested in Justin's story. And that was some kind of reality bullshit and, you know, commercial breaks. And, and it, it was it just felt so exploitative. And, and when I was watching it, I thought, am I? Am I pissed off because this is Justin, right? If I didn't know the guy that they were talking about, would I still be pissed off or would I just think, yeah, it's another bullshit TV show? Um, so when you have an emotional connection to somebody, it's like a portrait of somebody you love. If if they come out, if it's not accurate or or doesn't align with your understanding of them or, or it feels like the artist was... Um, dismissive in some way. It's so easy to to have a bad reaction. But uh, you guys sent me the the PDF of the book, and I sat down thinking I would just read a chapter and kind of get a feel for it. And I spent uh, the next three hours. I couldn't stop. It was fantastic. So um, thank you for the care you put into that book. Well, I mean, thank you so much. That means um, the world to hear. I mean, particularly from somebody. Uh, who knew him um, as well as you did? Um, you know, it's been it's been a, a journey for me since I started working on this story and since I uh, came across Justin and to talk with so many people who, including yourself, who who cared about him, who met him on the road, uh, who had long exper experiences and relationships with him and fleeting ones. Um, it you know it never kind of. You know, it never fazed me that I was dealing with uh, somebody's life and uh, someone's life story, and I and I didn't uh, take that lightly. Uh, so that really means a lot to hear that. Yeah, yeah. It's it, now you've this isn't your first book, right? You've I know you're a journalist, and what That's else right. have you written? Yeah, I'm a I'm a Canadian journalist, and I work at a, a magazine called uh, The Walrus, uh, based in Toronto. Um, which is my day job, but I've also, uh, my first book uh, came out in 2018, um, which was called Big Lonely Doug, um, which was about a, uh, right. one of the largest uh, Douglas tree. fir trees yeah, in Canada right. that was, yeah. that was saved by a logger and became this environmental icon. Um, so that was my first book. And, and uh, I'm from out West, uh, a small island in British Columbia. And so that story felt very close to my heart. And, and this one too um, felt very close to my heart too. I, I spent uh, a couple of years in India before um, before coming across this story, and so I felt kind of primed to uh, to write this one as well. And and so both of them were very kind of uh, personal um, journeys for me as well. Which island are you from? Uh, it's called Salt Spring Island. Um, it's right oh, yeah. in between Vancouver and and Vancouver Island and Victoria. Um, it's kind of a little yeah. back back in the seventies and eighties. It was a bit of a hippie back to the lander uh, place, and my, my yeah. parents moved there in the early eighties, and I was born and raised there. Uh, it's cool. It's paradise. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's awesome. I've been there. Um, mm. uh, I've I've spent a fair amount of time in those islands up uh, Cortez Island. Mm -hmm. I have a friend who has a house up there, and 
So we sort of bopped around a bunch of islands. Um, yeah, that's an amazing place up there. I remember I was on a, a friend who has a, a boat. He took us to a place, uh, I can't remember, Desolation Bay maybe or Destruction Bay. Uh, Desolation Sound? It was like, yeah, maybe. Yeah. This, the, the, there are all these uh, slabs of rock going into the water that get heated by the sun. Mm. And it's like the warmest water north of Mexico or something in the Pacific. It was amazing. Yeah, I mean, it's this, it is a beautiful corner of the world, and I'm super lucky to uh, go back there often. Um, and it, it's true, it, it has, you know, unparalleled nature. I just, I can't get enough of it, even from somebody who was, who was born and raised there. It's, you know, big mountains, big trees, and big ocean. And yeah, I, I, I just yeah. adore it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. So you were in India. What, what were you doing in India? Were you just bopping around, or were you researching something else? The the first trip I did um, in 2008, 2009 was, was about a, a full year. I could get a year tourist visa. And I went um, kind of as the as kind of a classic post-university graduate, didn't know what I wanted to do with my life. Let's go to India and kind of figure things out. Uh, not an uncommon uh, trajectory for people. And yeah. But I was really inspired by my, my dad who went there uh, in 67, 68, uh, mm. he had this incredible three year around the world trip, uh, in part that took him to South Asia. Um, and, uh, he took a, he was in Africa, South Africa, East Africa, and then took a boat across to India. And so I grew up with all these stories of his travels and there was something about India that really connected with me, that really resonated with me, uh, unlike, uh, any of his other stories. And it was kind of hard to put a a finger on what that was exactly. It was partly the landscape, you know, the spirit of the Himalaya, but also a bit of the spiritual side of 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 that part of the world, and um, you know, this incredible multi-layered history, and you know, the food. It was just kind of this incredible combination of everything that I wanted to explore, and. So I, I set out initially with my dad for the first uh, for the first month, and that was quite a trip for him to go back forty years later because the country had changed oh, dramatically. Wow. Um, yeah. I mean, there weren't many motorcycles and scooters and and motorized rickshaws in 1967 as there are now. Um, so that right. was a, a big dramatic change for him, and and you know he had just turned sixty five, and I was kind of this you know young twenty something, and and uh, we were both kind of going through these you know, transitions in our lives. And, and, uh, we, uh, we set off up to the North and tried to do this big hike and it never actually ended up working out for us for a few reasons. And, and so when he went back, I continued on and I went to almost every single state in the country, uh, <clears throat> the Northern tip, right down to the Southern tip and East to West and, and about a month in Nepal. And, you know, almost the entire trip was on my own. And I really, you know, it was there that I kind of started writing in earnest, um, looking at stories and looking at places and, and kind of looking at issues in a different way and wanting to kind of share them and communicate them. And, um, and, uh, so, you know, there's a lot of that first trip was, was me figuring out what I wanted to do with my life. And it set me on a path that I, I think I still am on right now. And I'm extremely, fortunate. And I look back at that, that year as being a profoundly transformative one for, for where I, where I am now and where I ended up. Um, and yeah. my, so I went that's back. 
Oh, sorry. I went back about four years later. I went to journalism mm -hmm. school and then went back four years later um, to work for, to intern for a Canadian newspaper based in Delhi and uh, mm. and was up in Kathmandu for another four months and then back down to India. So I've, I've had this kind of two, two looks at India, two different years there, one purely as a traveler and one working in journalism. Um, and I've gone back a couple of times since to work on to work on this specific story, this this book. Um, wow, that's uh, that's an uh, amazing series of of situations there. I mean, going back with your father, I, that's incredible. I, I was in India in 1988 the first time and I go back and it's like, holy shit, what happened to this place? I can't imagine what what it's like for him that experience. I mean, in '87, uh, there were India still was aligned with the Soviet Union, mm. and so there was no there were no Western companies there. There's no McDonald's, no KFC, no Toyota. It was there was one kind of car in the whole country. This little ambassador, and you probably mm -hmm. I'm sure your dad told you about this. Every car was the same car. That's it's all you saw, you know. And uh, so to go back now and see all the variety of the, you know, just that sort of integration with the Western world is depressing as hell in some ways. Um, and the the just the experience of traveling is so different because of the internet. You you don't feel so far away. You know, I, I had a fucking shortwave radio that I would lie in bed and like pull out the antenna and tune in. And, you know, I'd get, you know, this is the BBC doing cricket scores. And I was like, oh, English, this is amazing. Like, you know, like this is the only way I would know if there were a nuclear disaster or something. You know, it, was, it felt oh, like I was on another planet. Absolutely. I mean, he there was no you know, this predates Lonely Planet guides when my dad was there, 67, right. like that was just starting to to come out. He went with a history book and that was his his guide. But also, <laughs> That's I mean, great. and he took, you know, our house is sort of filled with slides that he took, photographs that he took in, on his film camera and shipped back back home. So he never saw a picture for three years that he took, having no idea. Yeah, I did the know, same thing. Yeah, you're shooting Kodachrome. Exactly. And it's like such a different experience to how, you know, we travel now and obviously how, how, how Justin traveled was, you know, this kind of intimate relationship with your people, your family back home and your friends back home and people who are, who are following along in your travels. But, you know, for my dad, even to get money, no ATMs. So he had to send a letter by mail to his parents who had control of his bank accounts back in Vancouver and say, I'm going to be in Delhi in a month. Please send a money order. And they would send a money order to the, the general post office and he would go and pick it up. That's how he, right. he could stay on the road for three years straight. And it's just, I mean, now yeah. it's a different world. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, the obvious question is what is the resonance between your father and Justin? I mean, my dad went 67, 68. That was, you know, at a time when uh, a lot of Europeans and a lot of Westerners were looking at India as this place of uh, information, of knowledge, of spirituality, of transformation. I mean, he, my dad kind of went the opposite route, but at that time, that was the height of the, the hippie trail. Um, so all those yeah. overlander travelers coming from Europe 
you know, through the Middle East to India with this ultimate destination in mind, um, which was only, you know, you know skyrocketed uh, by the Beatles in 68, which put that, that turn, you know, turned that trail into a, into a highway. Um, and so my dad went, you know, he went in, in some ways um, for similar reasons to how I went. And I think in similar ways to how, how Justin went at a period in our lives when we didn't exactly know where we wanted to go and felt that this, this one place could offer something to us in terms of answers, in terms of direction, um, a compass or knowledge. And, you know, Justin was somebody that from a very, very young age was, was deeply committed to the search for knowledge and for understanding his place in the universe and in the world. Um, and all those kind of connections between people and between nature, between the earth, um, and between potentially something bigger than all of us uh, was something that really drove him. And so even though my dad probably didn't necessarily go for spiritual or religious reasons, um, at the core of, I think, all of our reasons for going there, and for a lot of people's reasons for going there, um, is that because India holds something that I think is almost unique in the world in a lot of Western minds, which is a place of transformation, a place that you can go with certain questions and that uh, they will be answered there. Um, and to me, that was kind of the common thread. That's why when I first came across Justin's story, um, I did think back to my dad, and I, but I really thought back to the reasons why I initially went there. Um, and, you know, there were a lot of similarities there. So what's the difference between you, me, and your dad on one side and Justin on the other? Is it just, is it just luck? In terms of why they, why we all went? <laughs> why we I survived, why we're here to talk about it. Yeah. And Justin isn't. Yeah. So, I mean, at the crux of this story is, is a tragedy at the end of the story is a tragedy and, and, Justin disappeared in in the summer fall of of 2016 uh, in a really remote small valley in the in the Himalayas, um, and I think for a lot of people, uh, when they land in India, they feel this this sort of push and pull. Um, you know, the country either wanting to take something from you or wanting to give something to you. Uh, at times, it can feel like. Uh, a carrot and at times it can feel like a pretty hard stick and you know it's in, in ways that you know as a canadian and i've traveled in lots of different countries around the world i've never really felt the same i didn't feel it when i was living in south korea for a year i didn't feel it when i was in europe um, i didn't feel mm. it when i was in tanzania uh, but i felt it every single day when i was in india and it's this it's this force that at sometimes feels like yes it's dangling this possibility of of you can find spirituality, you can find your calling around the next corner, but also I'm going to confront you with some hard realities of this world. And India is, is a country that isn't shy with presenting those hard realities to, to me when I first landed there as, you know, a fairly naive 24 year old. Um, and to a lot of people, uh, that there is, you know, poverty like I've never seen before and and a lot of pain alongside the incredible beauty that that country offers. And so for a lot of people, they can either get 
caught up in that. They can push it away. They can reject it. Uh, and they can hate India. And I'm sure there's a ton of people who you've talked with who've gone to India who've just, it's been too much. It's been overwhelming. It's, they've hated it. And they'll never go back. Um, and that's, that's fair. And that's a totally fair reaction. But I think for other people, that curiosity pulls them along. And in some cases, it pulls them strongly and, and far along. And I think Justin was somebody who was not only open to those experiences that were presented or those challenges, but willingly really pushed himself to, to find those ones. And so for me, I, I remember when I first started researching into Justin's story and, and I thought back to all those experiences I had when I was in India, including one where I went on a solo hike to the source of a holy river uh, in Gangotri to the source of the Ganges, completely on my own in a very, very similar way to how Justin disappeared. And it made me wonder what were the differences here? Why did I come back okay and why did he not? And, you know, I talk a lot about, in, about that in the book of um, Justin's trust in people, um, this kind of wonderful trust that he gave to people, um, but in sometimes maybe misguided trust. Uh, but also I think when you are pushing yourself, you increase the chance of danger. And he was never, since he was a little kid, through his teenage years, um, all the way up to when he disappeared, um, he was never shy of putting himself in a dangerous situation because he knew that in those moments, in those extremes, he can get something out of that. Um, and so I think that's kind of the biggest difference is that he, he really strove, he really pushed himself to see what he could find at those, um, at those extremities. Yeah, that's, <clears throat> that's a good way to put it. I, I vacillate. I mean, I think you and I talked about this a bit when you interviewed me for the book. Um, you know, I, I, I admire him and I miss him. Um, but I'm also angry at him. Mm. And uh, it's an anger, I think, that has a lot of uh, shame mixed in with it because in, uh, and it cuts in two different ways. One way is I have traveled in a lot of places where I was close to some sort of edge, but I rarely went out to the edge. So, you know, in a, in a physical way, you know, like I've been in places where if I'd been willing to get inoculated and, and do a quarantine and learn some language and hike for a week, I could have been with a remote tribe of hunter gatherers, you know, but I didn't, I stayed in the guest house and, you know, got up and drank coffee and hung out in the ha hammock and, you know, went swimming and, um, part of me feels ashamed of that, that like, man, you, mm. you went so close, but you didn't take those last few steps to really go somewhere amazing, right? You sort of went to where no tourists were very few backpackers were, but then you didn't go past that, you know? Right. Um, so there's that, but then there's also the other side where I, I did go to an edge and I almost killed myself. 
whether it was with heroin in Chiang Mai or a motorcycle that I almost crashed and had no business renting, you know, like, and then I think about all the pain that I would have caused to my friends and family the way Justin did. And I feel some shame there and say, well, the only difference is I was lucky, mm. you know, that I took crazy risks too. Uh, so it, it's weird. Like half of it is I wish I'd taken more risks and other half is I, I regret the ones I did take. Um, so I'm kind of, I, I, I haven't come down to a, 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 a solid static narrative as to how I feel about Justin or how I feel about myself, I suppose, is, is what I'm ultimately saying. And, and I get that. And, and, you know, and I, I felt, you know, similar things um, in my own life. And I, you know, and I, I think I'm just a little bit more cautious uh, when it comes to some of these things. Um, so I, I tend to tend to go, I tend to stay pretty far from, from that edge. Um, you know, but I've also done things that, you know, my parents have not been happy with, uh, in terms of climbing mountains or, you know, not <clears throat> being in touch for a couple of weeks, uh, as I, as I bum around selfishly. Um, but I think, and, and, and I, I don't want to present the fact that I, you know, I'm, I'm passing any kind of judgment on, on him by any means, or somebody who does want to, to push that because, you know, luck is a factor. How much of a factor it is, um, is, is up to debate, but it, it is always a factor. And, 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 you know, being at the wrong place at the wrong time or meeting the wrong person at the wrong time um, is always kind of a nature of, of independent travel. And, and same with trust. You always, you know, when you're traveling in a group, you're traveling with your partner, you always kind of have this little bubble, this little shield around you. But when you're on your own, you're open to those conversations, you're open to meeting new people, and you're open for someone to say, hey, here's my hand, let me take you off to this great experience. And so seeing, you know, what ultimately happened to Justin, which is trusting a person, in this case, uh, a Hindu sadhu who he had befriended, uh, lead him into the mountains up to this holy lake, um, where only the sadhu returned. Um, I understand that uh, that that core desire for experience. I understand that, and you know why did I come back from the source of the Ganges River, and Justin did not from the source of the Parvati? Uh, does have a lot to do with with uh, with luck in the end, um, and that's I think what makes the story so tragic. It it, and I think also so relatable um, is that mm, a lot yeah. of travelers, even someone as cautious as I could put themselves in his shoes and feel like, you know, yes, he was pushing himself, his, himself uh, physically, emotionally, but I could have been in that situation just like he was. Um, and I could have been drawn to what I could, I could find at those mountains, whether it was a view or a profound experience. Um, and I think that's ultimately why I... Um, really wanted to tell this story is that I felt like Justin's life was relatable on so many different levels. And I think a lot of readers who have that adventurous spirit in them, um, who do have some kind of deep burning dissatisfaction with something in their life will see elements of theirs in his. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. It's a very relatable story. And it's, it's a testament to how well written it is that you know from the beginning how it ends but you're still compelled to read it right it's not it's not a mystery They're like well it is a mystery but it's uh 
you know, you sort of see the shape of the story before you really get into it. I mean, everyone listening to this, of course, I'll discuss who Justin was in the intro, so they all know what we're talking about, but it's still, um, and maybe even because of that, it's it's fascinating um, because it, it leads you to, to ask these questions about, you know, what, what, you know, someone gets cancer, everybody wants to say, oh, yeah, but, you know, he smoked or he drank too much or he ate too much of this or too much. Everyone wants to, like, find reasons for it that make them feel safer, you know. Mm. Um, and so it's always so disturbing when someone who's doing the same things that you love to do comes to um, a sad end like this. Mm -hmm. I, you know, you know, another reason I, I mentioned earlier that I feel some anger toward Justin. Um, and, and I, I was sort of thinking of this when I asked, what's the difference between you, me, your dad and Justin? Um, and you you touched on it when you talked about your dad taking photos, uh, Kodachrome. You, there, the only place to get, if he was using Kodachrome, which I guess he was, the only place to get that stuff developed was in the U.S. Yeah. I think there might have been one, one plant in Europe. So you would shoot your rolls of film, put them in these prepaid bags that they gave you when you bought it, and ship them off to the U.S., hope they arrived they would get developed, sent to your parents or whatever. And years later, you would see these photos you're taking. And, you know, as opposed to Justin filming himself, I mean, people can go to his Instagram page, which I think is still active, Adventures yeah. of Justin, and see these amazing, and he's a super good looking guy. I mean, fashion model, attractive, really good photographer. And there are just all these amazing shots of him cruising on his motorcycle or hanging from a tree or, you know, jumping off some cliff somewhere. And the thing is, Justin was in a movie about Justin. And when I when I was with him, I felt like he was in a movie about himself all the time. Mm. Um, whereas I don't think your dad or me or you envision our lives quite that way. And I don't know to what extent it's a technological thing because I feel like so many people, like Justin in a sense was killed by Instagram. He was killed by the need to create content for a bunch of fucking strangers, you know? Mm -hmm. um, so there's something about that. And, and I remember talking with him about that. And it's like, dude, grow the fuck up. You're not living your life for a bunch of strangers online, you know? Ah, I don't know. Sorry. No, no. I, this I, whole story is so personal for me. Yeah. And I, and I, and I understand that. And I think that was, you know, in talking with, um, you know, so many people who, who were close friends with him or, or met him along the way, that was something that, that constantly came up was this tension between, between what he was doing. Uh, was he doing that for himself because he genuinely loved uh, to travel, to adventure, to do, you know, crazy, dangerous things. Did he genuinely love doing that uh, from like a true, authentic, you know, hate to use that word, but from a true core part of his being? Did he love that and get so much out of it? Or was he doing those things uh, for his audience? And I think, and I think the motivation there um, at times probably flipped between the two. And I think at certain times, of course, you know, it was very clear he loved 
traveling and he loved meeting people who had, you know, a skill to teach him or, you know, a piece of knowledge to share. Um, but at other times it felt like he was potentially doing things because he knew at the end he was going to get a great story out of it or a great photograph out of it that he could share uh, on Instagram or on Facebook uh, or on YouTube. And that would, um, you know, increase his reputation as kind of a minor travel celebrity, uh, but also, you know, have this, which we've all felt as people who use social media, this feedback loop of, I post something and people like me. <laughs> um, and that, you know, I think partly to your point, I think partly it's a technological one. Those, those technologies just didn't exist for my father in 1967. There was no feedback loop for him to feed into. Um, but for Justin, there was, and there was a number of platforms that he used uh, in part to, uh, to share his story in a very meaningful way. And I knew, I know he wanted to inspire people with what he was doing, but I think you're right that there was this other side to it that was um, very confused, very at odds with what he was doing. And I think uh, most importantly, very uncertain with how he wanted to present himself online. And, you know, in researching this book and speaking with so many people, often there, I did come across this, this, uh, this contrast between a story that, that the people in the moment shared with me and what was presented online. And sometimes the details were mm. slightly different and sometimes they were radically different. <clears throat> and we know that happens with social media. People exaggerate or they, they take out facts or they, um, mm. but I think the question here you know, which I talk quite a bit about in the book is how much of what he was doing came from a place of genuinely wanting to do it or how much of it was from a place of knowing that it would, it would sing well with his, with his followers online. And I think there was a lot of tension there, uh, deep within him, um, about, about what kind of feedback he was going to get and where that actually came from within himself. Yeah. It's interesting to follow that thought to him deciding to go live in this cave with the sadhu because in a way yeah. that was a very that was an experience that was in its essence not uh, amenable to to exploitation by social media it's you true know what i mean it it's was true. like something where he's He's going somewhere where the light's going to suck. You're not going to, you know, he has that, that one photo, the last photo that he took of himself, right? In that cave, which you actually found, I, I believe. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I mean, that whole, yeah. that his last month in the Parvati Valley, he spent the majority of it living in isolation in a stone cave in the forest, uh, pushing himself. And and I think what's most interesting about that is that in this 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 camp, um, this kind of temporary um, village uh, high in the mountains called Kirganga that attracts pilgrims to bathe in these holy hot springs where Justin's cave was nearby. There's no cell service there, or there's very, very bad cell service. You can get it if you stand on a rock on a clear day. And so he was not sharing that experience with the world in real time, as so often we see on social media. And where he he ultimately disappeared is a place far from cell service. He went well beyond uh, the reach of the last cell tower uh, as he hiked for days up to this holy lake. And so I think you could absolutely look at that last month, those la the last six weeks 
um, of his life as one where he was he was not doing that. He was not instantly um, rapidly sharing all of these things he was realizing, all of these experiences he was having. It was a much more personal experience for him that was clear. Um, he did post about it when he came back down for cell service for himself into cell service um, in between these two journeys. And he did write about it, but it was in a very different way. And I think you're right to look at that, that time in his life at the very end of one that was, was genuine. That was for himself. Yeah. I can't, I don't know whether that's something to celebrate or, or the ultimate tragedy that the minute he started living for himself, his life ended. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's, I mean, I think it's both. I think it's, um, it's, uh, it's ultimately, the story is ultimately tragic of what happened and it, it does end in, um, in a lot of, of mist and uncertainty. Um, but I think as somebody who never met him in person, but came to know him over the past, you know, four and a half years of intimately following, uh, the story and, and talking to all of his friends and, um, and working on this book, um, you know, I do take a little bit of solace knowing that that last month, um, was one that was important to him and was one that he, you know, I, I remember a quote that you gave when I interviewed you, uh, where, and it's in the book and you said, you know, Justin is the ultimate uh, product of social media. He, he couldn't get out of the frame. And that one really, really stuck with me. And I think, you know, if there was a moment when he was trying to at least get out of the frame, it was at the end. Um, and I, so it is a tragic, it is a tragic end and there is tragedy in, in that fact, but I do, um, it does leave me with, a a feeling of, you know, if there was a way for him to, to, uh, conclude, to wrap up his life, I'm, I do take a bit of solace in the fact that he was doing it in that way. Um, you know, finding mm. peace in the mountains as somebody who, since a young kid, adored nature and survivalism and naturalism. Um, you know, he was in his element. It's funny, you know, we, we say it's a tragedy because he was so young. Um, how old was he when he died? He was 36. Um, but in other ways, you know, if if your life can be traced in, in the way that we're talking about Justin's as a struggle to attain a certain freedom and you attain it, then there's no tragedy, right? That's a life mm -hmm. well lived. Mm -hmm. and, and it does sort of feel like his life was... I mean, I know, I know it's all retrospect changes things, but it does kind of feel like he was struggling to reach that precipice and then he fell off, but his whole life was reaching that precipice. And so mm -hmm. it's, in a way, it's hard to see that as a, as a tragedy in in an ultimate sense. He was certainly seeking something, as you said, what, do you think that's what he was seeking? Was he seeking a way to 
evade his own narcissistic impulses or evade the the judgment of strangers? What do you think I, he was seeking? I think partly, I think it, you know, and in in learning so much about who he was as a teenager, um, particularly, but also through his twenties, um, you know, he was somebody that had this this like deeply insatiable. Uh, well that he just had to fill in with as much you know knowledge and understanding as he possibly as he possibly could but there was also you know long before social media even there was um there was this desire to kind of understand uh what connected him to the world and justin had this complicated relationship with with religion uh from a young age uh from since he was a little kid um, that waxed and waned, but I think there was a there was a there was a a question in his mind that that he never let go, um, and a belief that he never fully let go. Even though he had these moments where, you know, when he was a teenager, he was in this terrible, terrible car accident and nearly died, a truck accident. Um, he was hit by a semi and and you know broke a lot of bones and had shards of glass embedded in his skin and just a horrendous accident. And that really um, called into question, you know, if there is something out there looking out for me, why would you bring me this close to death? Uh, for what reason? So he had these moments that called all of his beliefs into question. Um, but I don't think he ever fully gave up on his seeking, on his quest to figure out whether or not something existed, a thread, whatever you may want to call it, Shiva, a god, um, you know, or a spirit or a natural force, the universe, Mother Earth, um, never gave up on that that quest to to see if he could find that. Um, and so I think it was a combination of things. I think it was partly rooted in his desire to to feel the intangible. Uh, and then later on, all of these other conflicting forces that kind of fed off of that um, and in some ways exacerbated it and called into question who he was at a very, very, at the very, very core. Um, you know, not just his connection to to a higher power or to the natural world around him, um, but to who he was, what his actions were doing um, and what they were causing. Uh, so I think there was a lot of forces that really... Uh, that really uh, spurred him on um, and that kind of twisted twisted in his heart and in his mind uh, for many, many years leading up to India. Did you find a part of his life that I, I don't really know much about is his relationships with women? Um, I knew some women that he was involved with, but it always seemed very... Um, I don't know, very light or, or kind of, uh, I, you know, and I understood at the time, you know, when you're dedicated to traveling alone, it's hard to imagine developing a deep connection with someone because you'll either mm -hmm. have to take them with you or leave them behind, neither of which really works uh, if you're traveling the way he was traveling. Um, but what, what did you find about his relationships with women? Did did he have any real deep intimacy with women, do you think? Or was was he trying to work something out first? 
I mean, in, in, I think intimacy is um, is a huge thread uh, throughout his life. Um, you know, he his parents divorced when he was when he was quite young, when he was a young boy, um, and he after that was was raised by by his mom through his teenage years. And I think he always kind of struggled with developing intimate connections with with people, whether they were friends or romantic partners um, throughout his entire life. And and I spoke with a lot of people who, um, you know, had relationships with him, both fleeting and and, you know, long term relationships. Um, and I think, you know, even when he was when he was traveling I, and I this has kept coming up in in my research that he wherever he was, you would see these connections with animals and he would, he would, you know, take in a stray cat or a stray dog and rehabilitate them and then, you know, bring them back to life. And, and I think there was, that was a, a part of it too, was this trying to find some kind of intimate connection with something, something that was going to, was going to love him back the way that he wanted, wanted to love and be loved. And so he had he had a lot of relationships, as you said. He was a very good-looking guy. Um, he also, uh, you know, was you know big into martial arts and the gym. Like he was a he was you know a physically fit, very good-looking guy, and he attracted the atten attention of a lot of women and and uh, had a lot of relationships. Um, and I think at the core of them is something. I think you you are absolutely right that it's hard to live the life that he lived and maintain them. That's not to say that he didn't, um, he tr and he didn't try. Uh, he was engaged once in his twenties. Um, mm. and he had a number of, you know, relationships that lasted, uh, more than six months a year. Um, but once he, you know, quit his job and committed his life to a life on the road, um, it became increasingly hard to maintain these relationships. And one of the interesting things with talking with all these people is that Justin kind of felt like this magnet that was, you know, being dragged around the world, being, you know, attached to all these people for different moments of time, but that each one left was left with this impression of something that they felt in some way stuck to, um, which made it as, you know, as a researcher and as a writer, very easy because everybody remembered him. He, he left this incredibly deep impression on people. I'm sure you, you understand that. And, yeah. but for, for the romantic side, it was for him, it was something that was almost an impossibility to maintain the life that he wanted, which was one of ultimate freedom and independence, uh, as well as one that was intimate and supportive um and loving which is something that he he definitely uh wanted throughout his life was was to feel that intimate connection and support of of somebody else uh, a partner um and you know talking with a lot of his his former partners they you know they all echo a similar thing that they couldn't give what justin ultimately wanted um and I don't know if that was something that uh, is ultimately, you know, impossible to find. I think there are ways that you can you could have relationships where one person is is traveling a lot, um, but it's hard. It's really hard. And I think, particularly with, you know, the last sort of 
three, four, five years of his life, he was also getting attention from a lot of different places through social media and through his travels that complicated his desire to have a long-term relationship as well. Um, but ultimately, at its core, I think he was somebody who was who was desperate for intimacy and desperate for connection, whether that came from a friend he met on the road, uh, a romantic partner, um, even a fleeting one. And uh, or or a stranger who may offer something to him. Yeah, yeah. So w when you talk to these different people, you said a lot of his former partners felt that there was this sort of universal sense that there was something he needed that they hadn't been able to give him. Did they name that thing, or was it just a? a sense of incompletion or discontent or something like that or failure maybe i think it was i think it was almost an unsustainable view of of relationships um one mm. that he i think maybe even he understood didn't really make sense like i i remember talking with, with one former uh, girlfriend of his who you know he said he wanted to marry her he wanted to have kids with her but he also wanted to you know travel indefinitely with the kids and you know there's there are a few people who can do that um but not a lot and there's special circumstances that allow for that uh, for all sorts of reasons financial and you know childcare, all sorts of things um yeah but i think that vision that he had and i think this speaks a lot to his character is that the vision that he had of his life um, was something that was was fairly idealistic. Um, and I see a lot of beauty in that. I, I don't write that off as being being naive. He wanted um, he wanted his life to be uh, perfect. He wanted it to be the ultimate story. Um, and I think a lot of his decisions, uh, whether that was with, in relationships mm. or where he went or his work, ultimately came yeah. down to this seeking of uh, perfection and perfection's a hard thing. It's a nearly impossible <laughs> thing to achieve in, in any relationship or any, um, adventure. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Any life. Have you, have you ever read a book called the razor's edge? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I think about that book a lot in terms of Justin. Yeah. He, and he mentioned it. I know he read it as well. And he, um, you know, ultimately that story, you know, at least in part is about a man who went to India to to um, have a transformative experience and to meet a guru and came back changed. Um, right. And I know he he read it. I know he thought deeply about it. You know, he was interviewed on on uh, some podcasts, um, you know, when you interviewed him uh, uh, twice. Um, it was around a time when he was being interviewed by a few places, um, you know, travel blogs and podcasts and things. And um, he mentioned the razor's edge on one of them. And it, and it was before he had gone to India, but at a time when India uh, clearly mm -hmm. was a destination for him, clearly had occupied a place in his mind. His father went to India um, in the 70s and had a hugely transformative experience. Um, I didn't know that. And... Mm. Uh, uh, and that really, really shaped his father's life. And so Justin grew up, you know, with 
with, you know, a small Hindu shrine in his house, in his childhood house. Um, he grew up with his father practicing yoga and meditation. Um, mm. And so all of these themes, you know, from a young age all the way up through the books he read, in, including including The Razor's Edge, was, was um, all of these pinpoints along his life that, you know, him, sometimes I think that my me ending up in India was almost inevitability because of my father's history. I feel like right. for Justin, it was an inevitability as well that he would, he would ultimately end up there. Um, and that was, that was his first trip to India. It was, yeah, he had been, his first uh -huh. international trip uh, was in 2006. And he, at that time he was living in San Francisco and working um, at kind of an alternate school and alternative school. And a documentary team wanted to take a group of students to Nepal to film a kind of cultural exchange documentary. And Justin um, tagged along as the as the kind of wilderness medic. He had got his certification uh, as a wilderness mm -hmm. EMT and so went along in that capacity, but also as a mentor to the students. Um, and, you know, he, you know, hiked up in the Annapurna Mountains and had this totally crazy experience where a young Nepali girl fell from this window and, and cracked her skull on the ground. And Justin carried her, uh, ran through the mountains to the nearest village where she could be airlifted to, to safety. And um, he had these huge, you know, profound moments um, in Nepal on that first trip, um, you know, meeting a reincarnated monk uh, of one of their guides, like all the father of one of their guides, um, all of these huge experiences that, that, you know, it was pretty certain that he was going to go back to South Asia and he returned to Nepal a couple times. Uh, but, right. but in 2016, that was the first time he had crossed over and, and gone down to India. Yeah. 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 I remember he, he went like way back into the Mustang region, uh, of Western Nepal. Like mm -hmm. a month from from any place, yeah, yeah. yeah that that's... was in twenty twenty fourteen. His his trip to Nepal, so a couple of years before his his uh, his final his final trip, and he um, yeah. he yeah he trekked up into the Mustang Valley, which is this you know decades ago it was a, a very very remote independent kingdom that didn't allow outsiders in, and you still need to get you know a lot of permits to be able to travel there, and um, that was actually one of the stories that. I found really interesting because how Justin presented that story, his, his journey into the Mustang Valley where he slept in caves um, and visited all these remote villages and, you know, hiked back over this five and a half thousand meter um, pass in flip-flops of all things. <laughs> he did, he presented that story as him alone in the mountains. And when mm -hmm. in my research in reality, he had guides and another a tourist with him. And so there were all these kind of moments where, you know, getting back to what you we were saying earlier, I, I began to question or just to kind of examine the fact that what he was presenting online wasn't necessarily what was happening in reality. Um, and that mm. really kind of guided a lot of my my thinking, um, you know, looking at some of the things that he posted in the, his final couple months in India, one of which was this. Uh, infamous final line that he posted before he went on his his trek up to this holy lake, which was, if I don't come back, don't look for me. And that was a line that a lot of people read and were picked apart and wondered whether or not he ultimately wanted to disappear um, intentionally. And uh, 
so there was a lot of issues. There was a lot of moments like that where, um, you know, in his trip to the Mustang was it was a good example of that of of you know what is he presenting online and where does that match up with reality, whether in tone, in spirit, or in words, um, and and intention. Yeah, how do you feel about disobeying that final request? I mean, if anyone's gone looking for him, it's you, right? <laughs> That's right. I mean, you know, after Justin disappeared, um, there was this enormous search launched um, where his mother and uh, a, a friend of his um, flew to India, traveled to the Parvati Valley and spent uh, the better part of a month uh, on the ground working with local police officers, uh, the American embassy, um, you know, hiring helicopters, hiking up to where he where he uh, disappeared to search for him. And um, yeah, it's it's been something I've thought a lot about, um, you know, because I've traveled to to the Parvati Valley twice um, to to follow in his footsteps and to try to uncover uh, what happened there, not just what happened in the disappearance, but what happened uh, in the months that he spent there. And it, I think, you know, it's interesting because in some ways, you know, it, it does kind of feel like I'm disobeying somebody's final wish of, you know, if I don't come back, don't look for me. But I also think that, that you know, he also punctuated that line with, with kind of a winking emoji. So there was a little bit of, <laughs> there was a little bit that. of, you know, tongue in cheek um, right. with that final line. Um you know, and that was all because it most likely played well with the people who would be reading his blog or reading his Instagram account. Um, it all kind of added to this this mystery and this um, the story of what he was was hoping to get out of this this final trip. Um, but it's something I've thought a lot about, and and you know, I, when I went back um, to India th this last time um, in in 2019 before the pandemic hit. You know, I spent a month in the Parvati Valley and I, in part to find his cave, I really, there was a lot of loose ends I wanted to tie up, a lot of people I wanted to find. And I, you know, ultimately ended up finding some of the last people to see Justin alive, um, you know, shepherds uh, and sadhus and, and local people who, who saw him in, the, in his final weeks um, and had something to offer and kind of complicate or fill in the story. But I also wanted to find his cave. I wanted to find this place that uh, he spent three weeks of his life in to step inside it and to try to feel what he felt. And it was a very, it was a very eerie experience to be poking through this forest and sticking my head into all these different caverns with pictures on my phone um, and this hand-drawn map written by a friend of his um, who met him in the valley to see if it would be Justin's. And when I ultimately found it and I matched it to the video that Justin had posted online and this quartz vein matched up and the opening was perfect, it was, a, it was haunting. You know, there was, there was still soot from his campfire caking the ceiling of the cave. And to be in that place, to follow in his footsteps, to try to understand his story, ultimately, you know, I hope 
that Justin would want his story being told, that he would would be happy that um, his life is in is in book form and that it's, you know, potentially going to inspire people to um, to maybe in small parts uh, do the kind of traveling or adventuring um, that he did. That that was going to be my next question was how how you think Justin would feel knowing that there's a book that was written about him. Mm. Um, yeah, it, it's interesting that whole don't come looking for me and the, the tongue in cheek aspect and the fact that correct me if I'm wrong, but when you found the cave at first, you didn't recognize it because he had flipped the image when he posted it. Yeah. So there's this, this, image that still sits as the banner image on his Facebook page. And it is this, this incredible self-portrait <clears throat> that he took uh, inside his cave after lighting a fire. Um, and it's just beautiful. It's just a beautiful image. Um, it's beautifully lit and shot. And he's reclining with his book. He's posing, um, as we all do. But he's reclining with, you know, a cup and a, and a book and this, this flute staff that he had made in India and carried with him. Um, his, the few belongings that he brought with him on this, this three week, um, retreat in his cave. And it's, it's an incredibly beautiful and now haunting, um, one of the final images that he posted online. And I initially, when I got into his cave, you're right. I didn't, there was something that didn't match up. The fire was in the wrong place. The opening was in the wrong place. And I realized that, the image had been reversed. Um, and that only kind of added to this, you know, very spooky haunting moment for me to be in there, you know, in essentially, as I, as I write in the book, one of the last places that Justin really called home, um, was this cave in the mountains. Um, and that realization that I had found it, that I had been following this story and following in this person's footsteps for, you know, for four years at that point, um, since he disappeared. And to ultimately end up first in his cave um, conclusively, and then the next day going up to where um, the few belongings that were found on the banks of the Parvati River um, was another moment that was, you know, I'll, I'll remember for the rest of my life. Yeah, I was, I was going to ask you without wanting to intrude on your privacy, but when I imagine after working so hard and, and, you know, like, don't come looking for me. It, it's not that you went looking for his body. You went looking for his essence, right? You mm -hmm. went back to his childhood. You went to his family. You went to his girlfriends. You went, like, you went looking for him in a sense that he probably couldn't have anticipated. This wasn't about find the dude. This was about find the spirit and the soul of this dude. To... To be there alone after that process, that must have felt like that. That must be one of the most powerful moments and experiences you've ever had or ever will have. I mean, it was, um, and you're absolutely right. I, you know, I didn't because of the nature of the story and because of the nature of the disappearance. He, you know, he disappeared as as I said in this place with no cell service, and so there in a very, very remote area with very, very few witnesses. Like this is not a crime scene in a city where you can have all sorts of evidence that you can glean. Um, 
And the first time I went was about five or six months after Justin had disappeared. So any evidence that I could uncover was not going to be found along the trail or necessarily in his cave. It was going to be found in the people I spoke to um, and interviewed. And you're right. It, it, I never went into it thinking that with the ultimate goal that like the ultimate goal, the, of solving this, this disappearance or of, of putting this final pin onto uh, what truly happened up there. I wanted to find out this remarkable person's life that ended up um, at this final point um, in the Himalayas, all the forces, all of the history, all of the motivations that ended, that brought him there um, to me was a much, much more interesting um, was a much more interesting story to follow than than ultimately, you know, putting a bow on what whatever happened at the end. Um, yeah. And I think, you know, I think for for people who pick up the book, you know, I hope that there is still a lot of questions, and I wanted that. That was intentional. I wanted people to make up their own mind about what may have happened up there. You know, did Justin intentionally disappear or was he um, was he, you know, uh, the victim of some nefarious activity? Um, there's all sorts of different theories that I explore about what have, what might have happened and all sorts of pieces of evidence that I that I offer. But, you know, ultimately, I want there to be ambiguity because there is ambiguity um, and there's a lot of mystery. And I think to go with the intention of trying to ultimately solve this mystery and, you know, laying the book down was not, would, would, wouldn't do justice to the story that I saw from the very beginning, which is one of a very fascinating, complicated person. Um, mm. and all of those, those points, uh, along the way that ultimately led him, um, uh, to where, it, to where it all ended. Do you think there is any chance that he's alive? Yeah, I know you want to preserve ambiguity. I'm not going to like run you through <laughs> no. the different theories, <laughs> um, but I mean, I th I've thought about what? that a lot. Yeah. Like he he, what a guy in search of the ultimate travel experience, right? Uh, you know what I mean? Like to 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 disappear is kind of the ultimate travel experience in a way. You know, to leave this life. Uh, but I just can't imagine him doing that. He was such a loving person. I can't imagine him putting people through the pain of of grieving him. Yeah. You know, absolutely. Uh, unless it, he lost his mind or something. No, absolutely. And, and you know, that intimacy that we spoke of earlier um, was something that he didn't, um, you know, he didn't, uh, he always wanted. There was something that he really... Um, deeply sought and to completely sever that, you know, with his, with his family, with his friends, um, you know, it's a different thing to, you know, to paraphrase you to completely step out of the frame. Um, but it's a whole different thing to, to sever ties with the people that you truly love. Um, but I think what complicated the story is that is where it was set and, you know, India for a very long time has occupied this place of, you know, with the overlanders through the hippie trail through to people very, very recently have gone there. Um, people that I met uh, on my travels who went there 
and had such a transformative experience that they shed their previous lives, burned their passport, and walked into a new life uh, in, somewhere in that yeah. country. And there is a long, and yeah. I documented it in the in the book in in number of examples, a long, long history of people who have done just that. Um, you know, some who, you know, turn up at their embassy 15 years later saying, I'm so-and-so and I don't have my passport anymore, but I've been living in the mountains. To people mm -hmm. who, you know, this one fellow I met um, just outside of Rishikesh, uh, where the Beatles uh, spent um, a, a few weeks in 68. And this there was there was this fellow who I was introduced to him, or I was sort of led by the hand, taken up to this this cave on the banks of the river saying that there's a bunch of Hindu priests who've been living there. And I thought that might be interesting. And so I, you know, followed along and it turned out they were all foreigners. One of whom was this Swedish man who had burnt his passport and been living in India for seven years um, in, in a small part in this cave near Rishikesh. And so when you look at that final line of don't look for me in the context of India and its history, um, mm. It adds a complication to that, that I think you as somebody who knows him and, you know, me as somebody who has interviewed all these people, deep down, I think we both know that there there is no part of Justin that would, would ever do that to the people that he deeply loved. But in the context of that country, you know, that push and the pull that we spoke about earlier can have a mm. profound impact upon people and can make them do things that they that would surprise you and would surprise his mother and would surprise uh, people who knew him very well. Um, so it added this complicated, yeah. con this complication to that final line within this history. Was this possible? Yeah. And, and there are ways to die without your physical body dying. And who's to say someone doesn't have an experience where they feel that my life up until yesterday is over mm. and this is a new life and I'm, I'm not trying to hurt anyone. I'm not disregarding anyone's feelings, but I died yesterday. Mm -hmm. I mean, I can imagine someone having that sense and feeling that the only way to honor that experience is to follow through with it. Mm. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's a complicated thing. I, I think about like, what would, how would I feel if he turned up? How would I feel if, you know, whatever this new manifestation of him turned up somehow, or, you know, is listening to us talking right now. Uh, it's, it's, it's amazing. It's it's like he's become a, a phantom or something. It's a very strange thing. And and that exact point is something that came up with so many people that I I, I talked with. And um, I went to his uh, a celebration of life um, for him. I flew down to San Francisco um, uh, to attend it uh, on the invitation of his his mom and and some of his friends. And I was very touched to be asked to to join that very intimate. Um, celebration. And, but what really struck me, um, you know, was not just the people that had gathered that day um, and how they all came from these different walks of life uh, were so different, so many of them. 
and yet all have this, you know, that magnet that I talked about, this like something in their core that they just, when they met him, they couldn't shake uh, who he was and the impact that he had on them. But what I found so interesting is that so many people said, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if he just turned right up. I wouldn't be surprised if he walked around the corner and, and uh, was still alive. And it was something that people told me about, um, you know, one of his friends who he knew, Justin was this incredible survivalist and naturalist, had trained uh, since a teenager at the Tracker School in New Jersey and the Wilderness Awareness School in, in Washington State. And one of his close friends who, from those years, also a tracker and a, and a naturalist, flew out to India at the very end of the search to see if any he could yeah. uncover any evidence. And one of the things he said was, you know, being up in those mountains, you couldn't help but wonder whether or not Justin was just going to walk around the corner and ask what all the fuss was about. Um, and so that, that feeling of <clears throat> if anybody... You know, if there were anybody who could do that, could step off the grid, could survive in the mountains for longer than what we expect, could step into a new transformation, a new image of himself, which he did a number of times throughout his life in quite dramatic ways, um, it could be Justin. And that was something that a, that a lot of people told to me. Um, and so when they read that Don't Look For Me line, they knew that there was tongue-in-cheek there. They knew that he was winking at the camera, but that if anybody could do that, it, it would be him. And I think that, that in some ways, you know, tortured is a strong word, but I think that stuck with a lot of people in a hard way because it prolonged their healing and it prolonged their acceptance. But I think for a lot of people, it was a beautiful final line to leave them with, which was hope. And I think ultimately that's something that I think about a lot. Um, you know, as I followed in his story and as I followed in his footsteps to India, um, there was a lot of hope in his story, even among tragedy and, you know, heartbreak and, um, and a lot of things that he went through as a young man and through his life. Um, that I think he embodied was was trying to find that freedom in his life, that perfection, um, and that ultimately hopeful uh, perspective on on where he was going. And I admire that enormously. Yeah, there's there's only there's no perfection in life. There's only perfection in death. Hmm. Right. So yeah. what's the expression? Count no man lucky until you've seen his death. <laughs> so, well, Justin, if you're listening to this, hope you found what you were looking for, buddy, in that cave. Fucking Jesus figure. So we have to if, if he does show up again, you're going to have to write a sequel to this book. <laughs> the second coming of Justin or something. There will be at least an epilogue and afterward. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Harley, thank you so much for for making time to to talk and also, but much more importantly, for the care that you put into telling this story so well. Thank um, you, Chris. Thank you so much, and I really yeah. appreciate um, you know your perspective as somebody who who knew him um, and had met him, and uh, you know clearly left 
clearly left an impact on you, you as well. So I really, I really appreciate you having me on. Yeah. The book is called Lost in the Valley of Death. And uh, is there a subtitle? I forget. A Story of Obsession and Danger in the Himalayas. Oh, yeah. It's so much more than that, though. It's it's so mm. it, it, in many ways, it is the ultimate modern story. It, it's the it's a portrait of someone who could only have existed now. Mm. Right. This story couldn't have happened 20 years ago, even. No. Right. That that you're you're tracing this guy, but he left so much. He presented his own life so um, with so much meticulousness that that scene of you finding the cave and realizing that he had flipped the image in a way encapsulates everything. You know, it's like it's the ultimate irony. It's like, yes, this is the place, but it's the opposite of the way he presented it. You know, yeah. it, it's it. When I read that, it was just like, fuck, this this whole story is right there in that one anecdote. It's it's incredible. Yeah. Anyway, I hope everyone listening to this will go out and buy a copy, um, the hard copy, because the author gets more money for the hard copy. <laughs> is it going to come out in paperback at some point? Is it an ebook? Are you going to do an audio book? I will be doing an audiobook. I'm it'll definitely be an ebook and I'm sure it'll be a paperback at a certain point, but um the hardback Are you going to read the audiobook? I haven't decided yet. Um it, we are we're in talks about about uh what will happen there, but um potentially. Mm. Yeah. Well, I hope you do. You have a good voice and uh I didn't do the audiobook for my first book and I've regretted it ever since. Mm. Uh and I did the, the audiobook for the second book, and it's a really interesting experience to sit in a booth reading your own book. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's even, you know, I think it delivers a better product to the audience, but also just for you, it's a really interesting experience. Mm. So I hope you'll do it. I appreciate anyway, that. Anyway, Harley, thank you very much, man. Uh, is there a website that people should go to, uh, to see more of your work or what you're up to? I'm sure. Yeah. My, uh, my website is, is my name, uh, harleyrustad.com and you can find me on Twitter at H M R U S T A D H M Rustad, um, and Instagram at the same. And you can find me on Facebook too. Um, and I post right. all my new writing and, uh, hopefully we'll be working on, um, a next book soon. Do you post photos of yourself lit by candles in, in various beautiful spots, flexing um, your biceps? <laughs> it's mostly trees and nature, but um, yeah, <laughs> I'll, I'll... <laughs> all right. Good. I, I I'll probably cut this out, but I, I didn't find the right moment to, to say this. But I, one of the sort of emblematic images I have of Justin in my head is um, one day he was showing me photos he had taken. Remember he had that motorcycle. It was a, was it a Royal Enfield or something? Yeah. And I remember he, he said he was looking for that. And he asked me if I knew anyone. Cause I, I had a motorcycle for years and I was like, dude, why are you going to buy that? That's a shitty motorcycle. Like get a BMW or something, you know, you're not gonna have to worry about it. And he's like, no, but I mean, it looks so cool, man. It's just, and it was, it was one of those moments where I just wanted to slap him. It's like, dude, you don't buy a motorcycle because it looks cool. You buy a motorcycle because <sighs> it's safe but and it's I, well designed. 
And I mentioned that in the book that that was ultimately a romantic decision. You know, there's practical yeah. decisions, but he wanted the romance. He wanted the image. He wanted, you know, this yeah. like incredible historic. And in India, he picked up the same bike. You know, there's there's right. so much kind of foreshadowing. And um, but that was ultimately because that bike looks so cool. You know, those oil rolling yeah. field 500s, they're, they're super cool. Um, whether it was the most practical bike yeah. to be touring around the U.S., I don't know. It's it uncomfortable. It, yeah. it broke down a lot. Yeah. Okay. So I give him shit every time it broke down. I was like, oh, you're stuck in Reno. Oh, there's a big surprise. Yeah. But uh, anyway, there was a photo he had taken of himself and he's like cruising down the road and the sun setting. And I think he was in the desert in Utah or something like that. And it's just a great shot. And I said to him, like, dude, how did you like, how did you time the camera to take the shot in just that right moment? You know, like, because I'm thinking like someone who learned to shoot on a Nikon mm -hmm. 35 millimeter, you know, there's a timer remote or whatever. And he, he looked at me and the expression was one of like, kind of like compassion for an older person who doesn't understand how the world is now. Right. And also <laughs> mixed with like a bit of shame that he was about to like admit that it was just a magic trick. Right. And he said, no, dude, I shoot video and then I just choose a frame, the best frame from it. Yeah. And I was like, oh, I didn't know you could do that. Like, oh. <laughs> But I'll never forget that expression on his face. Because before I knew what he was going to say, I saw, like, part of this is feeling bad for me. And part <laughs> of this is feeling ashamed for himself. Right, whatever's right. coming here. Yeah, um, it's funny. I mean, yeah, even, that... even the, we picked a, an image of him for the, for the back cover uh, in the U.S. edition. I, I think the Canadian edition might have it, too. But... And that's an image of him outside his cave and he's walking in the forest and and it just kind of, you know, this is perfect image. But that was a still from a video that he took that he posted online. Um, and so mm. it was something that he did and was very familiar with, um, you know, all the time. Yeah. But yeah. That's, did you ever that's see the, I'm... did you see the image that he, he took of himself holding my book yeah. sitting on the motorcycle in front of the teepee? Yeah. yeah. I I, what a great <laughs> shot. I mean, we, the one... we should Photoshop your book into that photo. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, he was—he had a great eye. Like he, you know, oh, I, he's great. I yeah, kind of dabble in pictures, and you know, I've learned a bit from my dad. But um, he had a really good eye for light and for movement. But I think most importantly for for telling a story and you know, or communicating some kind of emotion, which is everything we want in a photograph. And you know, even the one which he kind of was very happy that Facebook had kind of, you know, flagged as a, as breaking some kind of sensor rules was the one of him, you know, stark naked on the Bolivian salt flats, um, with oh, his yeah. body mirrored in the, in the reflection. It's just like a beautiful image, but, you know, of course he was going to strip down and, and get this picture, but it, it says so much, like it's a beautiful art picture. And, you know, even his, his videos that he took and he posted on YouTube, are these really, really beautiful, haunting, wordless um, videos that that you know document a certain aspect of his life? And you know, it was it was interesting that he chose that. You know, in the vein of Baraka, his one of his favorite movies, um, but also that he wasn't narrating, he wasn't telling his story, he was doing mm. it through images in this very 
um, you know, kind of not self-aggrandizing way um, was, I found very interesting and, and very beautiful. And he, um, he, yeah, he had a great eye for what he knew um, was going to, was going to play well, but also what would tell a good story and, and communicate an experience. And um, yeah, I think I, your comment about how the story couldn't exist at any other time, I think you're spot on. I mean, you know, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, you're right that these things didn't exist. These forces didn't exist. And even 20 years from now, you know, Instagram has dramatically changed from 2015, 2016, you know, it's yeah. now, you know, shopping really <laughs> and tons of ads and everything kind of looks like an ad. And he was at that, that period where Instagram was really starting to change um, and, uh, and presented itself in a very different way. Um, so I think you're absolutely right that it, that, what happened to him um, and his story could only really exist at this very specific point in point in time. That's it. Hope you enjoy this episode, um, this conversation with Harley Rustad, and I hope you'll check out Justin's Instagram feed, see the beautiful boy at play, and um, maybe check out the uh, previous episodes that I recorded with Justin back in the day. Uh, links to all that are uh, included on the, the episode page on my website, tangentiallyspeaking.com, thatchrisryan.com. Thank you for your attention. Thank you for your time. Thank you for your love and your emails and your intros and all the rest of it. And I'll talk to you again soon. <laughs>